Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Overpowering Emotion, where I deep dive into all things big emotions, anxiety. Today, I'm talking about hoarding part two. Last time, I was talking all about what hoarding is and considerations. And today, we're going to start talking a little bit about what we do with these hoarding behaviors. Now, while I often talk a lot, you've heard me in previous episodes, if you've been following me, that we don't want to get caught into content and talking about anxiety, anxieties, anxieties, anxiety, I really take a trend diagnostic approach. But hoarding does have a lot of considerations. There's a few different types of anxieties that are important that we do deep dive into just because they have different considerations. And that's why, you know, with hoarding, for example, traditional methods, especially OCD methods, that that's where a lot of protocols were being followed. Traditionally, they've not really worked in the past. So I think that there's a lot of things that we need to think about. Now, before we dive into treatment, it's really important to ensure that the individual that we're working with, they feel heard and understood. And that's true for anyone with anxiety, right? It's so critical for the process and especially the process that we have to do with hoarding to make sure that that's going to work. So we need to understand where they're coming from. They need to feel that they're heard and understood. Our relationship is paramount for us to be able to see long-term effects. We also need to understand their behaviors in context, right? Hoarding is not a choice. It, it is a mental health issue that we really need to address. It's not a choice. So we have to have a really comprehensive understanding of what's going on for them what's going on in their context. So understanding their emotional discomfort, understanding the antecedents that lead to the problematic self-destruction behaviors, avoiding behaviors that contribute to the hoarding, right? We need to understand their feared outcomes, social factors, beliefs about hoardings, all the things that I often talk about when we're looking at anxiety, but we really, really have to understand their experience. We also need to know their skill deficits, right? That's really important for us to understand so we know how to best support them. Obviously, we're going to interview them to figure out all of this information, but we want to ensure that we use other methods as well. There's rating scales that can be super helpful. That's a whole other episode. If we go into that, some great tools out there looking at discrete behavioral aspects of hoarding. Uh, We can do neuropsychological tests that can be helpful when we're looking at the memory, cognitive efficiency, definitely things like the executive Uh, functioning skills, attention most specifically, because we know there's huge distractibility component for a lot of people who are suffering from hoarding disorder. And so that's a huge mediator in hoarding behaviors. So there's a lot of skills that need to be worked on there. Now let's get into some important considerations. Family, first and foremost, family and friends. I'm going to say the one thing that's the same with anxiety that we definitely need to make sure that we're addressing is looking at it from a systems lens, right? We're, we're, We're not just solely focusing on the one individual. They exist within a system. So we need to look at that whole system. We can't just focus on them. So oftentimes anxiety is a family problem. And so we need a family solution. That is really key. Like with any anxiety, we absolutely need to address, are others accommodating, right? Are others providing safety signals? We need to make sure we're addressing all of those things. We absolutely have to do a family-based approach, obviously, with children and teens, because there's a lot of parent education. There's a lot of training to respond to problematic behaviors, because oftentimes, you know, how parents respond actually reinforces anxiety. And in this case, for example, hoarding. 
So we want to make sure that they're responding effectively and not accommodating or reinforcing that hoarding. So focusing on positive reinforcement rewards, that's definitely important, as well as establishing firm expectations and boundaries. And we're making sure we're going to consistently maintain them. So having rules about discarding and acquiring items that can be really helpful when we're looking at kiddos and teens. But even with adults, we still need to look for those unhelpful responses and accommodations that family and friends are providing, right? And and might inadvertently be reinforcing hoarding behaviors, even like, hey, I know that you collect spoons. Here's another spoon for your collection. I was thinking about you, right? Ongoing criticism. You know, we could be really supportive and accommodating, but oftentimes there's a lot of criticism and complaints from others. And that can create a lot of major defense mechanisms. And it can look a lot like poor insight. I know there's a lot of research on people who engage in hoarding behaviors who have poor insight, poor awareness into the problem, but oftentimes they actually have pretty good insight, but they've just developed these really strong defense mechanisms and they hold on to their justification for their behaviors and push against anyone else who wants to help with change because everyone's being too forceful. So that's really important to address. So making sure we're looking at all the family members, anybody else who's involved, important people in this person's life and looking at even the community as well can be really helpful, even just for the support. We also need to consider just education about the mechanisms of hoarding and and hoarding behavior, right? So when we get into the psychoeducation and the mechanisms of hoarding, there's a few things that we want to understand. I know I've talked a little bit last episode, but I want to really make sure I'm highlighting some key pieces here. Now, when we're creating an intervention, we want to make sure we're creating a personal model about hoarding for the individual. So that means really understanding how does the hoarding show up? What's contributing to those hoarding behaviors? How is it impairing for them? Oftentimes the hoarding behaviors, it's an ineffective coping strategy. They're trying to use these coping strategies and they've used them in the past, but it's ineffective. So for example, self-distraction, behavioral disengagement, those are things that we need to work on. So we want to see how these behaviors are impairing for them. Obviously we can see how they're impairing, but we want to see from their perspective as well right? Where's the hoarding clutter getting in the way of their life? Like I said, as an outsider, we see a whole host of impairments, but we also need to understand for them what's impairing for them because it might be different, but that's the kind of thing that we need to understand to help them with creating change in their life. So as part of creating this personal model, we have to understand the emotional significance of a possession that they have, right? So understanding the the, the emotional significance of that object. We also need to understand their overall motivation underlying the hoarding in the first place. We all have these automatic habit loops, right? We fall into them all the time. When I get stressed, I go for a jar of peanut butter and maybe eat the whole jar of peanut butter. We all have our own automatic habit loops that we fall into. And with hoarding, we have to see what that loop is for them. Usually it's an emotional response, right? When they're acquiring things and there's emotional distress that they're feeling around even just the idea of discarding. So we're looking for their emotion regulation skills during decision-making. That's going to be really important. And I'll be talking about some of these skills in just a second. There's other thinking traps that might need to be addressed as well. 
right? So maybe they have a heightened sense of responsibility. Maybe there's an excessive sort of sentimental attachment to things or the future usefulness, things that I talked about last time. Maybe they're worried about creating waste, you know, or it's just a shame to throw things away, or they have this need for control, especially if people have been trying to tell them what to do, right? These are all very strong and a lot of individuals who hoard. So we have to challenge them and and, and teach them how to use some challenging questions, right? Coupled with the rest of the work that we're going to be doing to help them. And like I said, I'll be getting into some of these skills in just a second. I love using my committee member uh, analogy, right? Where we can objectively step back, we externalize the hoarding and, and all of the justifications and the traps that we fall into, we can identify them as these external committee members so we can work together. And we can objectively step back and evaluate which committee member is trying to take over right now, right? Is it controlling Carla? Is it sentimental Sam? For example, it just takes a little bit of the pressure off. There's a little bit of, you know, lightness when we are able to do that, but then we can see, okay, sentimental Sam, is this really an objective sentimental attachment, right? Or is it another thinking trap? So we can really just take that step back. So that's really important. Exploring their identity as a hoarder can be really helpful too, when we're creating this sort of personal model and understanding of what's going on. Many people would say, you know, that you They've got stories maybe about acquiring and saving items, right? So understanding what those stories are behind some of those behaviors, their motivation behind some of those behaviors can be really helpful. Now, it's critical. And I've talked about this before. And in my compass, I have a whole module just on buy-in. As part of this process, there must, must, must be buy-in, right? Because without it, That distress that comes with some of the exposure pieces that we need to do, being able to declutter, for example, and being able to go to a flea market and not buy anything, there's a lot of distress, right? So we have to have that confidence and motivation. That's got to be stronger than the distress that we're asking them to feel, that they're going to experience as they go through this decluttering process. Getting that buy-in is essential, If we're going to be effective in our work in any area of anxiety, and especially with hoarding, especially if we want long-term gain. So that's really important. Now, if someone doesn't even realize they have a problem, they lack that insight. So certainly there are some people with hoarding disorder that definitely lack that insight, or at least lack the insight into the severity of the problem. Um, Maybe they have the insight, like I said, but they've got the defense mechanisms that's limiting their motivation, or they're just not bought into treatment if, if they don't follow through with the things that we ask for homework. I mean, these are all very characteristic for those with hoarding disorder, but we really have to focus on if they do, it's not their resistance. It's not our place to get frustrated. We really have to come from an understanding perspective and man, this is really hard. That working alliance is so important, but we also use motivational interviewing. That way we can help develop their motivation to change. So in that process, we're listening to any ambivalence between wanting to keep things, but also realizing that the way their life is right now is potentially problematic. So we want to listen for those stories of ambivalence. And when we're really listening for that ambivalence, we can start exploring that balance between wanting to keep things, but living a life that's in line with their values, living a different kind of life. So with motivational interviewing, 
saying we're evoking that change talk that's so important. We're increasing the importance of change behaviors and We're also instilling our confidence. Anytime I talk about anxiety, there's two responses that we need to make sure we're eliciting support and confidence, confidence that they can change confidence that they can handle the distress that they're sure that they're not able to handle. So with any anxiety, right, that supportive, empathetic listening, reflective listening, ensuring that they feel heard feeling that they're understood, that we really get them because otherwise that's where those defense mechanisms come into place right? They're just going to hold on to their behaviors and that anxiety even more tightly. So we need to make sure that we've got that supportive uh, response, but also the confidence in their ability that they can become great evaluators, that they can make the changes they need in their life to live the life that they want. So as part of that process, we're identifying their values, we're connecting their behaviors with those values and what's important to them. And we're creating goals based on what's important to them. And we want to help them see that discrepancy, right? Between how they're living now and that life that they want to live. And they have to be aware of that discrepancy for motivation, right? And that's really important that they understand that discrepancy and they see that discrepancy and we can help them see that we can get them to close the gap with that discrepancy. So usually those values over the years, as people acquire and acquire and clutter and clutter, those values get lost literally and figuratively, they get lost amongst the chaos and the clutter. So really laying that foundation is so critical, especially once we get to the decision-making time, right? About what's really important to keep and how those possessions are part of the life they want to live. Are they part of that life that you want to live? The values are never the final destination, but it's kind of like our Northern star. I love the analogy of using a GPS system. As long as we're moving, it's always going to guide us. Even if we take a left turn to go over to Timmy's, right? It doesn't matter. Even if we're going the exact opposite direction that we need to go, that GPS is always going to say, you turn next right. It's always going to guide us back to help us make the decisions that we want to go in the direction that we want. If we pause, if we stop, if we put ourselves into park, that GPS stops working. So we just, as long as we're moving, right? That's going to be important. As long as we're moving, it's always going to redirect us. I just want to quickly say to you that motivational interviewing, I know that, you know, evoking that change, hearing the ambivalence is going to be really important, but it's helpful throughout the process. We're going to be using motivational uh, interviewing throughout the entire process of treatment because there's going to be times where maybe there's regression, things get really hard, really tricky. It's not just about at the beginning to get things going. We're going to run into barriers. We're going to run into stall. So we need to make sure we're using that throughout treatment to keep that momentum going. So important. Then we get to some of the skills on a really broad level. We're focusing on concrete skills, you know, related to executive functions organization. We're making sure that we're working on distress tolerance, discarding, you know, the distress tolerance related to discarding items, distress tolerance regarding excessive acquisition. And we're really looking at some of the hoarding related beliefs as well. So that brings us to the skills piece. A lot of people who engage in hoarding behaviors, like I said, have executive functioning challenges. 
So we know there's a huge comorbidity between hoarding and ADHD, for example. It's really hard to keep that frontal lobe activated, which is the last part of our brain. And it's the part of the brain that's responsible for decision-making, judgment, right? regulating our emotions, all the things that we need to be working on. Now, it's really hard when we have to approach an effortful, distressing, overwhelming task, like decluttering, for example, that part of the brain wants to shut down. So attention is a major problem. Distraction is a major problem. When we get distracted by something, we can't persist to the tasks that we need to do, like sorting and organizing. So it's really hard to start discarding, and then it's really hard to avoid clutter in the first place that contributes to chronic problematic hoarding. And things like decluttering, it actually becomes very aversive to them. So then that leads to avoidant behaviors. I'm not going to discard. And that leads to clutter. That becomes a problem. So this is really a key maintaining variable that we definitely need to work on. And I think a lot of people miss that piece. Even being able to structure the environment for them to be successful is going to be helpful. So there is some skill development, but there's also ways that we need to help structure that that environment. Having a supervisor with them, someone to work alongside with them to keep them on task, that's really helpful. Not giving them a whole room to work on. They're going to get distracted. They're going to get lost. So having just one small visible space of things that they need to work on. Maybe you have to cover everything else up. Maybe you're bringing it out and they just have a small little area to work on. Those things can help with structuring the environment for them to be successful. Now, when we're looking at some skills, we definitely need to work on as well as the attention executive functioning. But a key piece is decision making and problem solving. Because people with hoarding disorder, they have trouble engaging in these skills systematically. And instead, they engage in problematic self-distracting behaviors as a way to cope. And we know that that's not helpful. It just contributes to more hoarding behavior. So we need to help them create a framework because that's what's often missing, especially for individuals with ADHD, that mental framework of a process, a process of decision-making and problem-solving. So identifying the problem, what's maintaining the problem, setting some goals, identifying those values, brainstorming as many ideas as we can to figure out how are we going to help support this, evaluating each of those ideas, creating a plan of what we're going to do, how we're going to tackle these hoarding behaviors and decluttering, figuring out how we're going to follow through with that plan, and then making sure that we're going to evaluate that. That's all those executive functioning skills that can be really, really tricky. And as we go into this process again, we first have to tap into the why. So for example, why decluttering is important for them. We know why decluttering might be important, right? But but making sure they understand. And I use decluttering as an example because that's one of the key behaviors that we're going to be engaging in, right? That's one of the key skills they need to learn. But we have to have some of that change talk and motivation for change to be happening in the first place anyways, for them to be engaging in decluttering. This is their big why. Because without that big why, they're going to continue engaging in problematic behavioral disengagement and not knowing how to prioritize. They're just going to do what they've always done. It's an automatic habit loop that our brain has gotten into. So we got to figure out why do they want 
to be able to declutter, to learn these skills? Why do they want to be the ruler of their own brain over their own life rather than slave to that trickster hoarder amygdala emotional network in the brain? Right. And so that's why I really like to externalize the hoarding piece so we can work together as a team against that mischief maker. It's not all us against the individual that we're working with. We are all working together as a team. And we're going to keep our eye out for that trickster emotional network that's trying to cause some problems, right? And then we can focus on why decluttering for the person is important. So even when the trickster brain tries to get us into some of those thinking traps. So when we understand that why, why is it important for the person to declutter? It's really easy to establish things like value rules, that those value rules help justify what to keep and, and it helps them decide what to get rid of. I'd even post that why visually, having it up to remind themselves, oh yeah, this is why, this is why, focusing on that, almost creating a mantra for them. It serves as that reminder of why they're doing this because as they're doing it, that distress is going to increase, right? And the rules too are really important so we don't, we don't get into a power struggle with them. They're their rules that they're going to post. It's not us taking control. We're just reminding them, especially when things get hard, right? Easy rules, for example, you know, we're going to discarding rules, things that are broken. If they're dirty, they're not valuable. They're useless, right? They're just sitting in a corner, just dusting. Nobody's ever going to use them. Value rules. What are people going to keep? Maybe it's something that really was passed down within one own family for three or four generations. There's real value there, right? Obviously, things that the person still uses regularly. If they curl their hair every single day, we're going to let them keep their curling iron, for example, right? Or toaster, things that they're using regularly. So we look at the usefulness as well. And you can establish these regularly too. You know, if it was once that they used something 20 years ago, I haven't used my crimper since 1982. Well, then is that regularly that you're using it? You know, maybe you used it regularly in 1982, maybe even in 1992, but you know, chances are that the the fact that you might need it because you're going to be going to an 80s party. Well, you could probably just braid your hair, right? Like we can look at some really justifying what some of those rules are. Now, establishing that rule is really critical because we need to help them differentiate between the rule and the illusion of fear, because that's what our trickster emotional brain does. It wants us to suck in to that illusion of fear. It's like that cult leader that sucks us in. No, 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 for sure, for sure, for sure, I need this. Oh, and for sure, for sure, for sure, I need this. Oh, no, no, but that's so important too. And meanwhile, we've just collected, you know, a whole armful of things. That's going to be a problem. So we need to help them differentiate. This is your rule, your rule that you establish. And this is a thinking trap, the illusion of fear, right? What would happen if I get rid of this? That's usually what it is, that illusion. What would happen? What would that mean about me? What would that mean about my life? right? Those are important to address so that in that moment of distress, we can help them differentiate because it's that illusion of fear that sucks us in, right? Into the anxiety, into the distress, into the hoarding behaviors. What if someone needs it in the future? What if I could, what if I could help someone? What if, what if, what if, what if? Perfectionism. 
that's another OCD behavior wrapped up in some of this decision-making process too, that needs to be addressed that a lot of people don't necessarily address, right? They don't see that as another key piece because with perfectionism, there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of second guessing, which makes people indecisive. And when we're indecisive, we're going to avoid the behaviors, continue saving, avoid decluttering, just continues the problem, right? It's just another maintaining variable. So we want to make sure we're building automaticity with decision-making. That's really important, right? I always say time is our enemy because the more time we take and we're humming and hawing, we're getting ourselves trapped. We're second-guessing ourselves. We become indecisive. So all of the skills, decision-making, organization, everything that I'm going to talk about, we need to get them fluent. So it's building the skills, but also creating the automaticity. The less thinking that we can get out of it, thinking drains the brain. And when our brain is drained, that's where the emotional spiraling comes into place. We want to make sure that we're avoiding that. So aside from that, I mean, we've got the decision-making, we've got the problem-solving, the attention, those key pieces are going to be important to address as well as the perfectionism. We also need to learn time management, how to block and schedule time, how to plan, how to sort, how to discard. There's all of those kinds of executive functioning skills as well. So again, the attention and distractibility are huge barriers. So we need to make sure that we're addressing that. So I like to externalize things. What are your time robbers? What are your attention robbers? What's going to get in the way of you doing the things that you need to do? We have to get on offense. Oftentimes, we're so reactive. We're just waiting for something to go sideways. We just assume, yep, I'm going to do it. And then we go into it and then roadblock. And then it goes sideways. And then it's hopeless and helpless. Nothing works. Nothing is going to ever change. So asking, I often ask my clients, how confident are you that you can do this? On a scale of one to 10, 10 uber confident, Caroline, I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to get it all done in one go. My whole house that takes other people's weeks to do. I'm just going to go and do it. 10. One, uh, not at all. Like I'm just going to nod politely mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then you're going to leave and I'm going to close my door and then I'm going to live my life, right? Nothing's going to happen. So if it's anything but 10, what's going to get in the way of getting to that 10? And how are we going to address that? That's going to be really important as well. So problem solving, decision-making, let's get into categorizing and organization. That's huge too. Organization, I mean, that's an easy first step for people to have a lot who definitely have a lot of trouble getting rid of anything. We can start looking at that. Now, here's the thing. When we're looking at people who hoard, they often rely visually on where they keep things right? So they've got this sort of visual spatial map. They're like, oh yeah, that pile that's in the hallway down going into the kitchen, right? Everything they know, they have that visual map. And then there's a lot of anxiety and even panic about worrying they're not going to find something. And so if we start moving things, that could be hugely problematic, even if that pile doesn't make sense at all. And it's in a pile of things that don't go together at all. Like, how do you even know it's here? How are you going to find it? But they do. They have a lot of panic and anxiety about, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. So we have to teach them to learn to categorize 
And then to remember those categories versus the visual cue of where something is. But usually the clutter just becomes so overwhelming that it's just hard to keep track of anyways. But still that anxiety is there that I would be able to find it. So it can be really tricky for some people, right? So it might make sense. All the writing utensils go in one drawer. All the toiletries go in the bathroom, right? And one specific cupboard in the bathroom. Some people really have trouble thinking in these types of categories. They're not looking at the function or where I use them. So we got to think about how are we categorizing things? Because a lot of times people who hoard, they have things just seem so unique. So they might have two pens, but this pen, oh, this pen was from when we went to Niagara Falls, right? There's some sentimental value because it was at this hotel when we got engaged. So they're looking at that sentimental value, not the, these are both pens. They can both go into this drawer, right? And so they're thinking in different kinds of categories. They're not even thinking in the same functional logistical sort of concrete categories that we are. And so that's why they often organize visual spatially. So that's why there's a lot of work here just in helping with the categorization. And then once we have the categories established, we need to find appropriate location for where each of those categories need to go. So every single possession, it's assigned a category and a location, right? So that's going to be really important. I went through that, um, Marie Kondo, I think that's her name, Marie Kondo, the tidying up process. Anyway, um, when it first came, I, I grabbed that book. And one of the things that she had us do was gather everything together into one pile, put it all into one place. So all your toilet paper, all of your sweaters, all of your toiletries, whatever. And it was really amazing to see how many of one item I had stored throughout the house right? Like how many toothbrushes I had in every different bathroom, just in case somebody ran out or something, right? So we developed a system, all the extra toothpaste that aren't being used, all the toothbrushes that aren't being used, floss, that all goes together in one basket in our bathroom closet. So if anybody runs out, they just need to go to that one bathroom closet and the toilet paper is there too, right? And, and our face wash for night or whatever it is, right? So that makes the most sense. So the, the, the category of mouth care products or toiletries, they all go together in the best location that makes sense, right? If that location is cluttered now, while you're going through the process, you're going to have to find a space temporarily to put things, of course, right? But having that long-term place assignment is going to be really important. And that's going to help with the executive functioning. Just always knowing, I always put my toothbrush here. I always put my toothbrush here, here, here. That's going to help. That's going to help taking, you know, taking away some of that decision-making, building that automaticity. Then we can start practicing the act of organization. So that includes sorting into different piles of keeping, for example, am I keeping it? Am I recycling it? Am I throwing it away? Am I giving it to charity? Am I selling it? So looking at that sorting and discarding. So sorting into categories to discard, like I said, right? So, so garbage versus recycle versus donation, sell, keep. But this is where we can really help people remember those personal goals and their values. We want to connect those things that we worked on earlier so they, they can start focusing on what's important to them, right? On that broader level, what kind of life do I want to lead? 
and, and, and using those goals and those values to guide their behaviors. And oftentimes when we're looking at executive functioning skills, that's what's missing, the self-regulation. They're not thinking of their future self. They don't have any way to guide their behavior. And so we're helping create that framework for them with the values and the goals to help them guide their behavior. And then we can look at how to change any behaviors that aren't in line with those values and goals. So if, you know, creating a clutter and starting to save, that's not in line with the values in the life that I want to live. So that's kind of where we can start using that discrepancy and really evaluating the behaviors that we're engaging in. So that's going to be really important. So we're reviewing those values as they practice organizing. It's so, so important to make sure they're staying on track. So we're using that time in which we're sorting things and moving things and categorizing things, you know, to where they need to go. That's a perfect opportunity to chat about those values, to remind them about those values and even their emotional attachment to things, right? Because it's those beliefs that they have about the usefulness or the sentimental values that they hold on to their possessions, you know, those are important to think about, but also those are important to think about to help reduce the saving behaviors. So as we practice these skills, these discussions about the value and the meaning of possessions and the decisions that they need to make about keeping or removing some of the items, it's so helpful for them to form that that framework that I've been talking about, right? And that framework for changing the emotional attachments to possessions, but also, you know, using those skills that they need to make objective, informed decisions. When we work on organization, it's really helpful to to first focus on the possessions specifically. And then we can move on to paper because oftentimes there's a mishmash of things, things that are really um, important and valuable. And then there's more sort of what we would consider garbagey sorts of things. And paper is a big one, right? So creating a strategy, depending on what's being hoarded can be really helpful. We need to develop that strategy. So once we're working on the categorizing and all of those decision-making, problem-solving skills, we also have to help clients work on reducing acquiring in the first place because a lot, it's a specifier, but we know a lot of people with hoarding disorder, they do have that excessive acquisition. So we want to reduce that acquisition of things. This is a whole skill in and of itself. And it can be really important to explore the reasons and the emotions that are contributing to acquiring things right? But we also need to work on letting go here as well. And a key piece of all of this is distress tolerance, learning to ride that wave of overwhelm and distress. This is building the skills of emotion regulation, which is true for all of anxiety. And you've heard me talk about it before. It's not about turning down the anxiety. It's about our willingness to be able to live life anyway, even with the distress and accept it, that tolerance of it. That's the number one goal any of our clients need to work on, distress tolerance, because it's that distress that leads to saving behaviors. It's that distress that leads to excessive acquisition. And so if we can help them manage, tolerate that distress, they're not going to engage in those behaviors. So part of this includes building emotional literacy and awareness in which they can identify their emotions what's going on for them, the feelings, and what's happening physiologically in the moment. So just like other anxieties, we need to face the distress and we need to learn to tolerate it. That's where that acceptance piece is so important that I've talked about before, right? It's so often overlooked, 
but it, it's really important that we're addressing the openness, the acceptance, the non-judgmentalness of it, right? So the analogy that I love, and I use it all the time, so sorry if I'm repetitive, but is using my little brother. You know, he's almost seven years younger than me, and I had to babysit him when I was a kid. And there was a lot of fun to be had in the 80s, a lot of fun. Right. And it sucked to have your little brother hanging out with you, but I couldn't just ditch him. I would be in so much trouble if I just ditched him. Right. So I couldn't just ditch him, just like we can't ditch our distress and the anxiety, but I could still go hang with friends. Right. So I was like, fine, sucks that you're here, but come on, we're going anyways. We're still going to live life, or I'm still going to do what I need to do. Right. So there's several places where individuals need to learn to just to, to tolerate that distress. So not acquiring something in the first place is going to be really important. Right. Because there's definitely a lot of discomfort if they don't buy something, if they've gone to the flea market. Right. So go to the flea market, go to the yard sales and don't buy anything and manage that distress. That's what we got to work on. But we're also going to work at home, tolerating the distress as they're clearing things out, as they're letting go, as they're decluttering, and tolerating the feelings of loss and grief as they do all of those things. Being able to sit with them, with those feelings, with the physiological pieces that are going on, rather than avoiding or stuffing them inside. That is so critical because it's that distress that keeps us stuck in those automatic habit loops over and over and over again, and then nothing changes. So we also need to address that the distress that comes with the worries about not finding things. Because oftentimes, even if they have people coming in and they're feeling good, then it's the panic starts. <gasps> Where did you put it? Where did you put it? Some of the fear is, did you throw it away? But some of it is like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to find it. Right. So again, a lot of hoarders really rely on that visual cue. And all of a sudden, their corner is empty. Where is it? Where is it? Right. That distress comes up. So they need to be able to tolerate that as well. Right. So a lot of the times, that visual cue just helps them feel better. And we know anything that we do to make us feel better with the anxiety is just going to make the anxiety worse. Right. So there's that fear if that cue is gone. That, that visual cue of where things are. So they have to work on tolerating the distress of not seeing that visual cue. That's just another safety signal that we get trapped in. So they're going to realize, oh my gosh, where is it? Then they realize, oh my gosh, it's way easier to find the toilet paper and my toothpaste and all the toiletries in the bathroom. Whew, that's actually way easier. Even though I can't see it, it's in a cupboard right? That's way better than the hallway leading into the kitchen for one thing <laughs> and, and the middle of the living room for the other thing. Way better, right? So that's where we want them to start getting to. So when we talk about this distress tolerance, this is exposure therapy, exposure to discarding possessions and not acquiring. And most importantly, their willingness, their willingness to be uncomfortable as they do those things. And that's why the distress tolerance is so important so that they are willing to do the decluttering and not buying anything, even if it makes me feel uncomfortable. Their success, and this is true with any anxiety, and you're going to hear me say it over and over and over again, success is directly related to their willingness to experience that distress in the first place. 100% correlation to their willingness to experience that distress. Because if they can learn to tolerate those feelings, then they don't need those behaviors anymore because those behaviors are what's helping them reduce some of that distress, right? And so 
we, we that's why a lot of this exposure and this the distress tolerance is going to be so important. And as we do this, we're also disconfirming any misappraisals they might have about how awful that distress is going to be. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Clutter, clutter, clutter. So we're disconfirming those misappraisals, right? And then we can reward the brain. Actually, this is way better. So they learn through experience, not through talking, not through criticizing and complaining, through experience that they can handle it. Because it's that anxiety story that they can't handle it, right? It being not having something, not being able to find something, getting rid of things, for example, that's what keeps them stuck in anxiety, right? So they're learning they can handle it, it being whatever it is, right, that they were avoiding in the first place. Now, as we go through these, this process, we, we have to consider real or potential barriers, Right. And I think that another thing that's often, there's a lot of things that are often overlooked. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of people who go for support and they're not actually getting the support that they need for, for hoarding. But one of the things is the impact of having that empty space in the first place. As an outsider, we might come into the home, you know, before and after and be like, wow, this is beautiful. It's so open, it's clean, it's just freeing, right? It's so relieving, it's so uplifting. But for some people, especially people with hoarding disorder, that space can be very traumatic. And with trauma leads to stress and leads to more behaviors that just lead to more hoarding behaviors, right? So it can be really overwhelming. They have this overwhelming sense of loss, this overwhelming sense of grief and anxiety and depression. So it's really important that we're addressing whatever's happening for them when they come out into that open space. Because if they're vulnerable, they're more likely to reclutter again, just to reduce their anxiety and to buy things and fill the spaces up, right? So that's why that distress tolerance is going to be so important so they can manage that anxiety even with the open space in case it comes up, okay? And and, and we want to monitor because some people, they might be relieved at first. They might feel so much more hopeful and light, and it really is relieving initially. But over time... There could be that nagging distress at the back of their mind, and that's just leading them back to some of those acquiring and hoarding behaviors. So that's really important. We also want to take stock of some of the negative thoughts that they might have as we're going through this this process. If we're making progress, are there any yeah buts? If there are, we need to address those. So I'm going to leave it there for today. There is a part three where we're going into, there's a whole host of other considerations that we need to do to promote our success. Um, We need to look at relapse prevention. There's a few more pieces still that we need to do that are part of the intervention that we definitely want to make sure that we're thinking about. But this at least was a broad overview of things that we need to address. There are a lot of things. It's a lot more than just anxiety. It's a lot more than even just OCD. So that's why hoarding is a huge beast that we really need to deep dive into because it's it's a year-long process, right? So it might take not much time to get the process going, but to make sure we have long-lasting change, it's a process. There's a lot of work to be done. There's at least a few months of work and then the ongoing relapse prevention and monitoring and things like that. And everybody goes at their own pace, but but it's not a one and done by any means. There are so many different pieces that we need to make sure we address. 
underlying misappraisals, the, the information processing deficits, executive functioning deficits that are potentially there, and then just learning that distress tolerance and everything else that goes with it. So thank you for joining me today. Definitely come back next week because there's so many important factors that we really must address and and really need to understand so that we aren't making things worse. Uh, Definitely follow me on Facebook, on LinkedIn. I've got my consultation group every Monday where we talk everything anxiety and emotion regulation for adults and kiddos as well. And of course, I've got my anxiety compass training. So I'd love to be able to work with you. Enjoy the rest of your day.